0: This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Hey you. Yeah you. Have you subscribed yet? Maybe watched my drunken shenanigans on Rumble on Friday nights? Sean from Third Railify often joins me to read the news and absolutely derail my show. Stop by sometime. Usually starts around 10 p.m. Mountain Time, and I'd love to see you there. So we're back in the Northeast, in the first new state. At least the first one, alphabetically. What was wrong with the old Hampshire? Must have been something wrong with it. We left England for a reason, didn't we? So why are all these places on the East Coast named after the place we wanted so desperately to sever ties with? Doesn't matter. New Hampshire is seen by a lot of libertarians as a paradise. Live free or die and all that. They have super lax gun laws, including a gun that was designed to be their open carry gun. That fact came from my husband, and I've been unable to verify it through Google, but apparently Sig Sauer manufactured the most guns here in 2021. There's no state income tax in New Hampshire, which sounds great until you remember that the federal government will still rape your paychecks and get away with it. The one downside to this eastern paradise that I can find is the property tax, fourth highest in the country. So all the rich crypto-investor libertarians can afford to live there, but those of us who work for the FBI have no fucking chance. That's an inside joke, and if you don't get it, you should probably come hang out on Rumble on Friday nights. New Hampshire has a very strange relationship with the death penalty. Before the monumental case of Furman v. Georgia in the 70s, they executed a grand total of 24 people. That includes all their colonial-era executions. The very first recorded execution in New Hampshire was a double-hanging of Sarah Simpson and Penelope Kenny in 1739. The very last execution took place 200 years later, and we will be talking about it today. Following the federal reinstatement of the death penalty, New Hampshire kind of just sat around for a while. They didn't reinstate it until 1991, and to date, no one has been executed since 1939. However, and this is where things get weird, there is currently one person on death row in New Hampshire. Makes absolutely no sense, right? I'm gonna tell you right now, finding a last meal for this one took me a literal eternity. I scoured the internet. But I did find one, so leave your permit to carry it home, you don't fucking need one, and grab some hiking boots. We're headed up to the Granite State. I've talked about a lot of different crimes that have gotten people the death penalty throughout history. Murder, obviously. Rape once upon a time. Hell, burglary got you a date with the rope at one point in history. In the process of researching this episode, I also found a couple executions that were done for buggery, which is sex with animals. But one that caught my eye, and makes sense for the time, was feloniously concealing the death of an infant bastard child. People like to throw a fit about restrictions on abortion in modern times, but they probably aren't aware that back in the colonial era, you could be executed for just hiding a dead baby, unless you had a witness to prove that it was stillborn. Colonial law was a fucking disaster. It's taken us quite a while to work the kinks out and come up with a system that kinda functions the way it should. The General Assembly passed an act in 1714 known as An Act to Prevent the Destroying and Murdering of Bastard Children. Let me put on a heavy wool dress and a petticoat to read this. Maybe that'll help mute the Utah accent. The act they passed all the way back in 1714 reads as follows. Whereas many lewd women that have been delivered of bastard children to avoid shame and escape punishment do secretly bury or conceal the death of their children, be it therefore enacted that if any woman be delivered of any issue of her body, male or female which if it were born alive should by law be a bastard, and that she endeavor privately either by drowning or secret burying thereof, so to conceal the death thereof that it may not come to light, whether it were born alive or not, but be concealed. In every such case the mother so offending shall suffer death, except such mother can make proof by one witness at least the child whose death was by her so intended to be concealed was born dead." In plain modern-era English, that paragraph states that women are whores and try to cover up their whorishness by concealing their pregnancies. So if any woman is to give birth to a child out of wedlock and try to cover it up, they're to be put to death. Unless, of course, at least one witness can testify that the baby was born stillborn or miscarried. Then I'm sure you still get some kind of punishment, but you avoid the rope. The body of a newborn baby girl was found floating in a well in Portsmouth on August 11th, 1739, and the first suspect was a 17-year-old widow named Sarah Simpson. She had been suspected to have been with child sometime before this baby was found in the well. How did they know she wasn't just getting fat? They didn't have magical sticks to pee on back then. That would have been considered sorcery or some nonsense. Sarah denied that the baby in the well was hers, but admitted that she had recently given birth. To everyone's surprise, she led the investigators to a shallow grave by a river where she had buried her baby. The very next day, a 20-year-old servant from Ireland named Penelope Kenny was interrogated by provincial officials as they thought she was the mother of the baby in the well. Because the 1700s were such a wonderful time to be a woman, when they didn't believe Penelope's story, they forced her to be physically examined by a group of midwives. These women reported that Penelope had been delivered of a child within a week. Colonial English is a fucking disaster. The young woman wouldn't admit to anything at first, but after just one night in jail, she confessed to giving birth to a baby boy the Wednesday preceding her interrogation. She had left the baby in a bathtub and then thrown him into a river two days later. Sarah Simpson and Penelope Kenny were executed by hanging on December 27, 1739. Both women claimed that they hadn't laid a violent hand on their children. Sarah said her baby was stillborn. Penelope said hers had died shortly after he was born. Because no one had witnessed their babies being born, it was assumed that they had brought about the deaths intentionally. Guilty until proven innocent. Sounds a lot like modern times to me. I bet you're still wondering what happened to the mother of the baby found in the well. Fortunately for her, she managed to conceal her identity and get away with this crime. This is one of those hot-button issues that always seems to piss people off on both sides of the political spectrum. It could be compared to the abortion issue today. Sarah and Penelope both expressed remorse for what they had done, but still had to meet their maker for their crimes. Sarah's last words were from a written statement read out by one of the ministers. I don't have an exact copy, but she basically said that she married the wrong man and didn't properly adhere to her religion. She said that she wanted everyone to ensure that they marry in the Lord, whatever the fuck that means, Penelope used her last statement to warn others about committing an offense like hers. Due to the time period, I'm just gonna assume their last meals were some stale bread and salted meat. I can't find anything that says otherwise. Been a while since I talked about incest, hasn't it? That's definitely not a New Hampshire thing in most people's minds. This next crime I'm going to tell you about is very reminiscent of modern-day depravity, though it happened nearly 200 years ago. Franklin Evans was born in Stratford, New Hampshire in 1807. He was a traveler throughout his adult life and eventually made his way up into Canada. Described by others as eccentric, he was known to be a follower of William Miller, who had his own special brand of Christianity that I don't care to get into, Google Millerites if you want to know more. Evans considered himself to be a botanist and a magician. That's it. Story's over. He's getting the rope. Evans was the uncle of a 14-year-old girl named Georgiana Lovering. They lived in the same house, but Georgie wasn't very fond of the man. She showed him respect and all that, but she apparently picked up on his quirkiness and saw something she didn't like. Evans, at one point, tried to seduce the young girl, but she rejected him and told her mother about what had happened. After this, he began to be nicer to her, buttering her up with the hopes of having her in the future. I'm seriously grossed out writing this, but this is the 1800s. Shit like this happened all the time. To entice his niece, Evans began trapping birds in the forest and telling the girl about how colorful and pretty they were. Eventually, curiosity got the better of her, and Georgie began asking if she could go see the birds. This turned into Evans asking her to take care of the birds while he was at work, which she didn't really want to do, but out of respect for her elders, she agreed. On September 25th, 1872, Georgie reluctantly made her way out into the forest to tend to her uncle's birds. Before she left, she told her grandmother where she was going and that she'd be back later. Evans wasn't at work that day. He was instead hiding in a nearby pasture, watching his niece as she made her way into the woods. Once she was far enough in, Evans pounced and began attacking Georgie. She fought back hard, but was unable to overpower him. After being beaten and raped, Georgie tried to escape. Fearing what would happen if she told anyone... Evans began to strangle his niece with his bare hands. He confirmed that she was dead and took out a knife to mutilate parts of her body. What a fucking class act. When he was finished, he dragged her body to a swamp and covered it with rocks and leaves. Georgie's grandmother noticed that the girl had been gone longer than usual, so she sent another family member out into the woods to get her. He called out to the girl but received no answer and assumed she was playing a prank on him. After an extensive search, he got tired and returned home, without her. Neighbors then formed a search party and headed out into the forest. Near the entrance, they found a broken comb that had belonged to Georgie. Obviously worried, they continued on a path that led them to her apron. And even further down, they found some dirt with footprints and some odd-looking leaves. This indicated to them that there had been a struggle. Evans had gone out after the murder to run some errands and had returned home using a different path in the forest. After he got home, a man named John Mead came to visit him and asked if he knew where Georgie was. Evans claimed he was innocent, but was clearly unbothered by the fact that his niece was missing. This made John suspicious, and he went to the police. Surveillance was kept on the house until they could obtain an arrest warrant. Sheriff Henry Drew took Evans to his own house and questioned him but the man insisted he hadn't done anything. Probably would have been more convincing if he hadn't asked the sheriff for some strychnine to commit suicide with. Evans was held for a few days before he began to spin a story about a man from Kingston who had wanted to elope with Georgie. He told the sheriff that he'd given his niece $11 to buy some new clothes before taking her to the forest to meet with the strange man. Cops can often smell bullshit, but the sheriff decided to take Evans to Kingston to look for the man anyway. The search was fruitless, and by this point, Sheriff Drew was getting sick of the lies he was being told. He pressured Evans and bombarded him with questions about Georgie until he finally cracked and said that he'd done something terrible. A full confession was made, but Evans didn't want to reveal where the body was. In an effort to get the family some closure by bringing the girl home, Sheriff Drew promised Evans that if he told him where Georgie was, he'd help him escape into Canada. Obviously, this was a lie. Police are corrupt as fuck a lot of the time, but I imagine they have a deep hatred for incestuous pedophiles. Evans led the sheriff out into the woods and into the hollow where he'd left Georgie. After discovering the girl, Sheriff Drew put Evans in handcuffs. Realizing he'd been fooled, Evans begged to be shot. A surgeon was called to move Georgie's body, and he noted bruising on her neck consistent with strangulation. As they cut her clothes off, they realized how severely she'd been mutilated. Evans eventually led another officer to a mill where he'd left Georgie's severed body parts under a rock. Word spread quickly about the brutality of this crime. To prevent Evans from being lynched, the sheriff hid him in his own house until his trial began. Georgie's murder wasn't the only one Evans was suspected of. Investigators began to wonder if he'd been responsible for a series of mutilation murders across New England, including the rapes and murders of a 5-year-old girl in Derry, a 14-year-old girl in Maine, a woman in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, and two siblings in what is now Boston. His trial would be for the murder of Georgie Lovering, as they couldn't prove he'd done any of the others. Franklin Evans was executed by hanging on February 18th, 1874. He suffered greatly in his final moments, taking nearly 20 minutes to strangle to death. I guess in the end, he got to see exactly how Georgie felt. Leading up to his death, he remained in high spirits and was convinced that his sentence would either be commuted or he'd be pardoned altogether. In a written confession that he read out before he was hanged, he admitted to killing Georgie and the little girl in Maine, as well as several other financial crimes. His only request was that his body be sold to the anatomical division of Dartmouth College and the proceeds from that be given to his son. This was honored. His exact last words are unavailable, but he did read out his confession in the end. Due to the time, no last meal either. Stale bread and salted meat? Just assume that for all executions before 1900. Do y'all remember back in Maine when I talked about Stephen Marshall, the pedophile hunter? I guess this is just a thing in the North, because I found another one in New Hampshire. This one was a lot more fucked up and violent, though. No quick deaths by gunshot, and no proof of any actual pedophilia going on. On March 25th, 2006, police were searching a farm in Epping, New Hampshire. Reports of a missing man had led them here. Though they didn't find Kenneth County, they did find a barrel of ashes and bone fragments. This barrel also contained a pair of corroded pruning shears and some hedge clippers. A melted knife was also discovered, but that wasn't all. After going through the contents of the farm's septic system, police discovered bullet casings and a birth certificate belonging to a Connecticut man by the name of Michael Deloge. One of his bones was also found. Sheila Bailey was born in 1958 in Alabama into a very dysfunctional family. Her father was a violent alcoholic who would abuse his wife and daughters verbally, physically, and sexually. He often brought other men into the house to participate in sexually assaulting Sheila. Somehow, the young woman managed to make it through high school and graduated in 1976, These kinds of backstories often progress into tales of unhappy marriages and future run-ins with the law. Sheila's was no different. She married a man named Ronnie Jennings, but wanted desperately to divorce him. He wouldn't allow this for some time. Eventually, Sheila attempted suicide and was put into a psych ward. While here, she claimed that an orderly had tried to rape her. Not sure if there's any actual evidence of this, but whatever. Not learning her lesson the first time, Sheila married a man named John Baxter in 1981. This marriage would also dissolve. In 1987, Sheila moved from Alabama to New Hampshire after answering a personal ad placed by a chiropractor named Bill Labar. The two were never legally married, but lived together until Bill died in 2000. She even took his last name. Despite all of this... Sheila legally married a Jamaican man named Wayne Ennis in 1995. They were divorced the following year, and Sheila got a restraining order against him in 1997 after he allegedly assaulted her. When Bill died, Sheila inherited his farm. I have to wonder if this was a con on her part, as they were not legally married, but she claimed to be his common-law wife. Bill's children from a past marriage contested the will in an attempt to get the money, but were told it would cost about 50 grand up front, and it was only a 50-50 shot that they'd win. Legal battles are fucking miserable, let me tell ya. Sheila Labar was a strange creature. After arriving in Epping, she began to harass the police. She wrote to them and called on a regular basis, often for things as small as suspicious cars and her street not being plowed. Domestic violence calls were also an issue, and the cops became very familiar with her antics as they came to her house more and more. She clearly had a few screws loose, no one's denying that. On one occasion, when police came out to the farm in 1988, they noticed that Bill had scratches all over his face and neck. These were not self inflicted. Eventually, the police department had to implement a two officer response team to go after the farm because Sheila was flirtatious and overtly sexual with the officers. Michael Deloge was last seen in 2005. His mother had often worried that Sheila was trying to kill him. Though his bones were found in the septic tank with his birth certificate and a spent shell casing, His exact cause of death is unknown. We can safely assume that he met his end at the hands of his psychotic girlfriend, Sheila Labar. In 2006, Kenneth County met Labar through a personal ad and moved in with her. He was described as being very trusting and having a low IQ. This poor man. Labar had made a recording of him vomiting while she berated him for being a pedophile. No evidence of this accusation has ever come to light. Kenneth was stabbed to death and then burned to conceal his body. DNA from his army records would eventually identify him. Shortly before his death, Kenneth had been seen with Labar at a local Walmart. He was in rough shape, confined to a wheelchair, covered in burns and bruises. Something was obviously up, but no one thought to report it. LaBar was arrested on April 2nd, 2006, for first-degree murder. She pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Sheila K. LaBar was found guilty and sentenced to two life terms without parole in June of 2008. She's currently incarcerated at the New Hampshire Correctional Facility for Women. That insanity plea seems almost plausible. Like I said definitely a few screws loose. In addition to the bones and weapons, investigators found three severed human toes on the farm in Epping. These did not belong to Kenneth County or Michael Deloge, so who knows how many others she tortured and killed on that farm. No last words or last meals on this one. Obviously, she's still alive, But I imagine she doesn't have a lot of time left, as at the time of writing, she's 65 years old. A couple weeks ago, I did an episode on cop killers. In a lot of people's minds, they are deserving of the death penalty. Recently, it was proposed in Delaware to bring back capital punishment for those who kill police officers. I think all premeditated murders should come with a death sentence, not just murders of those with a badge. But I don't write laws, I just break them. I'm kidding, I'm a good kid. Michael Briggs was born in Epsom, New Hampshire in early May of 1971. He had a lot of potential. After graduating from Pembroke Academy in 1990, Michael went on to serve in the Marine Corps from 1991 to 1995. After that, he worked for the Epsom Police Department. He left his hometown in 1998, but moved on to work as a police officer for the Manchester PD. He was a bicycle cop. We, uh, don't have those here in Salt Lake. At least, I don't think we do. Motorcycle cops, yes, but I don't think I've ever seen one on a bike. The only uniformed people on bikes around here are missionaries. Michael graduated from the New Hampshire Police Academy in November of 2001 and continued to kick ass at his job. He received a medal in 2004 after rescuing residents of a burning building. This heroism would earn him the Congressional Law Enforcement Award in 2005. On top of his career as a police, Michael was a family man. He had a wife and two sons. Unlike the monster who would later take his life, Michael Briggs was a good man. I obviously didn't know him, but... Everything I've read leads me to believe that he was one of those rare good cops that I wouldn't have a problem with. In 1982, a two-year-old boy named Michael Addison was adopted by his maternal grandmother and her husband. Rosetta and Lucius Addison would later divorce, and young Michael was raised in what was described as a chaotic environment. Rosetta had teenage children of her own to take care of, in addition to her daughter's son. Michael Addison's mother was an alcoholic, and this would eventually lead to the boy spending some time in one of the most violent housing projects in Boston, Massachusetts. Like any other story that ends in a murder, our suspect didn't have an easy upbringing. But that isn't an excuse. I am one of many people on this earth who had a rough childhood, and I've never killed anyone. Addison was living in Manchester, New Hampshire, when he first had an encounter with Officer Michael Briggs. He was arrested near the Queen City Bridge in 2002. In March of 2003, Addison would receive life-saving first aid from none other than this officer who had arrested him the year prior. Addison had been shot by Thomas Williams, who later pled guilty to this offense. Just seven months after this shooting, Addison was arrested and charged with a handful of crimes related to the kidnapping and imprisonment of a man named Brian St. Peter, who apparently owed him some drug money. He took a plea deal and three of the four charges were dropped, six months in the slammer for criminal restraint. I think it's pretty clear by now that Michael Addison is not a good person. He's violent, he's got a drug problem, why they gave him a plea deal is beyond me. On October 10, 2006, Addison and his friend Antoine Bell Rogers went into a Mexican restaurant in Manchester with the intention of robbing it. Rogers held the owner at gunpoint while Addison robbed another customer at knife point. The next day, the two men held up a 7-Eleven in Hudson. Two women who had driven the men to the 7-Eleven later turned themselves in and admitted to the crimes. On October 15th, Rogers and Addison were involved in some kind of gun-related incident. The details aren't clear, but Rogers apparently fired a gun at an apartment complex. On October 16, 2006, Officer Michael Briggs and his partner, Officer John Breckenridge, responded to a domestic disturbance involving Addison and Rogers. Once the men were spotted, Officer Briggs ordered them to stop walking. Rogers complied, but Addison did not. After being told to stop yet again, Addison turned around and shot Officer Briggs before he could even draw his weapon. The other officers on scene returned fire, but Addison took off and wasn't hit. SWAT teams and local cops stormed the city of Manchester looking for Addison. Evidence was found in his girlfriend's apartment, including bloody clothes and a bottle of bleach. Eventually, Addison was found in his grandfather's apartment in Dorchester, Massachusetts. After some negotiations, he was arrested without incident and transported back to New Hampshire. Officer Michael Briggs died of his injuries at the hospital. Initially, Edison denied being involved in the shooting, but after telling his story six times, he finally admitted that he had shot at the police officers coming toward him. He was charged with capital murder, conspiracy, felony possession of a firearm, and armed robbery. Because the laws and the books in New Hampshire state that capital punishment may be sought in the murder of a police officer, the Attorney General decided to pursue it. I guess Delaware wants to do this exact thing. I don't know. I don't get it. The trial would finally take place in the fall of 2008. Addison tried to say that he was, in fact, guilty of the murder, but that it was second-degree murder. It was not knowing, but instead reckless and he should be given life without parole instead of the death penalty. The jury unanimously disagreed. Though they admitted the state couldn't prove Addison purposely murdered Officer Briggs, they recommended a death sentence. Gotta love juries. Michael Briggs is currently sitting on death row in New Hampshire. He's the only one. His most recent appeal was in 2016, but the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear it. He's also going to try to appeal in federal court on habeas corpus grounds. You know, show me the body. I talked about that a bit more in another episode. As it stands right now, there's a good chance that he'll be New Hampshire's first execution since 1939. A handful of charities have popped up to support the family of Officer Michael Briggs. He was loved by his community, his fellow officers, and his family. Some reports say that around 4,000 officers came to his memorial service. I promised y'all a last meal, so before I move on to a recent case, I'll make some food, I guess. As I was telling my friend Twitch, New Hampshire is a fucking weird place. Crimes up here are just... What the fuck? This next one is no different. It's got some pedophilia, some bite mark evidence, and even some corruption. Sarah Long brought a little boy into the world on September 21st, 1905 in Hartford, Connecticut. He was an only child born into a rich family. Oh god, a spoiled rich kid. Here we fucking go. At just 19 years old, Howard Long moved to Belmont, Massachusetts and committed his first crime. He attacked a little girl who bit him hard enough to leave a mark. Thankfully, she was able to get away and alert the police, who tracked Long down and arrested him. The bite mark would help lock him up in a Massachusetts reformatory. He was paroled not long after. Sometime in July of 1930, Long lured a boy to an abandoned house with the promise of giving him a puppy. He was assaulted by Long, but ultimately survived the attack. Long was sent to the Bridgewater State Hospital, but his mother bribed the judge with 30 grand to get her son paroled. After being released in 1935, the judge who had petitioned the court to give Long parole bought the convict a general store in Alton, New Hampshire. The young man could have left his past back in Massachusetts. But he wouldn't be getting a last meal if he did that, now would he? On November 12th, 1936, Long abducted nine-year-old Armand Nadeau in Dover. He drove the boy around for more than ten hours before trying to molest him. Armand got scared and jumped from the moving car, which resulted in a fatal head injury. Long went back to retrieve his body and hid it in the cellar of an abandoned house. The little boy wouldn't be found until a month later. Autopsy results showed that his skull had been crushed, likely with a car jack. Nearly a year later, Long kidnapped a 10-year-old boy named Mark Jensen from Laconia. Mark had been out running an errand for his mom when he disappeared. Witnesses saw him all over New Hampshire that day. At one point, he was seen walking with Long and his dog. The night after he vanished, Mark's body was found in the woods in Guilford. He'd been beaten to death, and it was later determined that his skull had been crushed with a carjack. Are we seeing a pattern yet? Unspecified evidence later linked Long to both murders, and he was arrested less than a week after Mark's murder. He was found guilty on December 13, 1937, and sentenced to death. Howard Long was executed by hanging on July 14, 1939. He was the last person to date to be executed by the state of New Hampshire. Though the exact evidence isn't available that tied this man to the murders of those little boys, it's clear to me that he was a predator. He knew that if his victims got away, they'd rat him out. That's why Armand and Mark were beaten with a jack. Pedophiles deserve the death penalty. You can't change my mind on that one. I can't find anything on Long's last words. He apparently wrote a memoir while he was in prison, but a priest had convinced him to destroy it before his execution. His last meal was three boiled frankfurters, hot dogs in modern times, boiled potatoes, lettuce, three slices of bread with butter, beet greens with sugar and vinegar, a piece of white cake, a bowl of milk, and a bowl of tea. Apparently cups weren't available in New Hampshire prisons back then. Domestic violence murders always piss me off. Years and years of true crime and news stories still haven't given me any insight into the minds of people who murder their spouses. Shooting a cheating wife, yeah, okay, makes a little bit of sense, I guess. A swift punch in the jaw and being thrown out into the street would work just as well, though. What I'm talking about is, like, actual abuse, like what Kellyanne Bates went through. I just don't understand the psychology behind shit like that. On December 17, 2023, a 911 dispatcher received a call reporting an unconscious woman at 332 Water Village Road in the town of Ossipee. I knew a weird town name would sneak in here at some point. New England is full of them. Paramedics and police officers arrived and found 33-year-old Christine Falzone with multiple injuries. She was pronounced dead at the scene. At the same house, police found Christine's boyfriend, 38-year-old William Kelly. He was arrested on one count of second-degree murder. An autopsy done on Christine revealed that she was 35 to 37 weeks pregnant when she died. Her cause of death was multiple blunt force injuries. A law was passed in 2017 that defines a fetus as a person after the 20th week of pregnancy. I bet New Hampshire liberals were screaming about that one. Anyone who causes the death of a fetus at that point aside from those performing an abortion, could face a manslaughter or homicide charge. They defined a 20-week fetus as a human, but it's still okay to kill them so long as it's during an abortion. Okay, you do you, New Hampshire. Despite this law being in effect at the time of Christine's murder, they still haven't decided whether they're going to charge Kelly with a second count of murder. While looking more into this law... I found a fucking hilarious article that is a great reminder of how incompetent government is. The wording in this bill initially stated that any act committed by the pregnant woman wouldn't apply in instances of second-degree murder, manslaughter, negligent homicide, or causing or aiding suicide. After already passing the bill, the lawmakers realized that the words any act technically made it legal for pregnant women to commit murder without consequence. Thankfully, they caught it and voted to close the loophole. So now pregnant women can't get all hormonal and go kill people without getting in trouble. Ah, government, what would we do without you? William Kelly was being held without bail, according to the most recent article I could find on this case, However, I looked him up in the New Hampshire Department of Corrections system and can't find him. I hope he's not out, but innocent until proven guilty and all that. Kelly has a lengthy criminal history, including convictions for domestic violence, felonious sex assault, simple assault, and probation violations. In addition to this, a protective order was granted against Kelly by a former girlfriend who claimed he assaulted her and tortured her leaving her with permanent injuries and brain trauma. Don't fuck this one up, New Hampshire. Goddamn. That's gonna do it for the crypto and guns state. Hell of a ride, wasn't it? I doubt I'll ever be rich enough to afford the property taxes, but it's a nice thought. If you enjoyed this episode, invest in Last Meal Coin and convince your local stores to accept it as currency. I'm available on Rumble, Odyssey, and most podcast apps. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. I'll be back next week to talk about another East Coast state that I wouldn't set foot in to save my life. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.